And welcome to Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity. My name's Louisa, I'm the president here at Solidarity, and today I'm talking to Alexa Netti about the flooding in Pakistan. Lexi is the CEO of Solidarity and currently works full-time on secondment at the Disasters Emergency Committee. The DEC brings together 15 leading aid charities to raise funds quickly and efficiently at times of crisis overseas, and recently launched the Pakistan Floods Appeal, which has so far raised over £30 million. We really hope you enjoy our conversation with her. Okay, so I think the first thing that would be really helpful for everybody to hear is maybe a brief overview of what it is that's happening in Pakistan and if you can explain why it's happening. Yeah, sure. So um, as some people may have already read in kind of the media over the past few weeks, towards the tail end of August 2022 and the beginning of September, Pakistan saw really extreme levels of rainfall that led to extremely severe flooding. So one stat that's been shared very widely is the fact that at one time, more than a third of Pakistan was underwater. And as a result, we're seeing a humanitarian crisis of really enormous proportions because what's happening is that not only have, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of kilometres of road been washed away and infrastructure been destroyed houses washed away but actually we're seeing a very immediate food crisis as well because grain stores have been destroyed crops are now moldy livestock like living creatures have been washed away so suddenly not only are people displaced from their homes but actually both the immediate and kind of the future food sources are now becoming super scarce Mm. so could you talk a little bit more about who exactly it is that's being affected Um, Is everybody in the country, is it a particular sector? Um, Well, Sindh province has been one of the worst affected. Um, Actually, more than 85% of all of the damaged and destroyed houses are in that region. Um, But it has been a fairly widespread um, experience of these floods, like with, with a third of the country being submerged. But there are certain provinces that have been disproportionately affected, and that's where the humanitarian assistance is being most directed to. And one of the things that I know you've mentioned before is that a lot of the people who have been displaced in Pakistan, it's not their first time being displaced. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Um, So Pakistan is already home to more than a million Afghan refugees. Um, And these are people who may have been displaced uh, from Afghanistan and fled to Pakistan more recently, but also um, may have been displaced over, over previous years. But regardless, we already had a country that was in a very weak position economically, hosting lots of people have already been forced to flee violence, persecution and just profound food insecurity in Afghanistan, who are now being displaced all over again. Um, And not that we want to kind of prioritise or say that it's worse for people who've already been forced to flee once, but it's just very tragic that people that sought safety the first time are suddenly finding themselves back in this situation. Your work is around fundraising for humanitarian aid, so I wonder if you could tell us what kind of aid it is that's being delivered in Pakistan at the moment. 
Yeah, so the needs in Pakistan are really widespread at the moment. In those immediate moments as the floods were taking hold, evacuation was a big priority. And there was some footage that people may have seen on the media of people using, like, kind of zip wires created from, you know, bed frames even to actually, like, hoist people out of their homes. And I remember sitting and watching, actually, with my friend's parents and... My friend's mum just pointed to the screen and was like, that would be my parents, that would be my mum, because they couldn't have waded through that water that is, you know, waist high or above. The elderly people, people with disabilities, were literally trapped in their houses. So that was really priority number one. Now, of course, temporary shelter is a big priority, as is emergency food supplies. But we're also seeing, unfortunately, a real worsening in the transmission of waterborne diseases. Um, and a part of the problem here is that all of the sanitation facilities that would normally exist have been completely destroyed. So there are now no toilets, there are now no showers, and that in itself already predisposes the likelihood of disease, but there are so many diseases, malaria included, which are, um, well, if not quite waterborne with malaria, um, require water for transmission. So we're seeing really much higher cases of watery diarrhea and other diseases than we would have so medical aid is a priority um but there are also thousands of women who are due to give birth in the coming weeks and actually that's a huge priority because not only do we need safe and secure facilities for people to give birth and receive medical attention if they need it but we also need to ensure that they have enough to eat so that they can also nurse their baby so that's another kind of facet to the aid being provided. And finally, I think, you know, as the water begins to subside, people ultimately want their livelihoods back. You know, in the in especially in Sindh province, large proportion of the population, their livelihoods came from agriculture. And so the international community does need to come together to ensure that they can do that. They can re- return to their well homes, rebuild and actually start to um, grow crops again have livestock again because otherwise we'll see a really ongoing hunger crisis as well which would be really devastating yeah and i guess one problem that looks sort of obvious is because a lot of the infrastructure of the country has been destroyed it's not easy to drive trucks with aid it's not clear how to reach people who are in need so how how are aid agencies getting around that problem at the moment well it's um, aid delivery is actually something that's really important within any humanitarian response, but access is especially difficult in response to this crisis because of the reasons that you've mentioned. And so the Pakistani military has been involved and there's been a lot of support on logistics from from that side. But as I mentioned, kind of bed frames and pulley systems, we are seeing aid having to be delivered by helicopter as well. And access for aid workers themselves is also really challenging um, for lots of the same reasons not only can people not very easily access areas that are entirely flooded but the risks of disease the lack of facilities, the lack of infrastructure is present for everybody including people who are trying to access those regions Um, so it's one of the things that needs to be planned most carefully in any humanitarian response really because it's all well and good you know, fundraising and coming up with plans to deliver. But if you actually can't deliver it, that's no good either. Um, It has been very, from my perspective, um, inspiring, actually, to watch 
the kind of creativity and teamwork that has been put in place because actually aid has been delivered you know within days it was absolutely necessary this had to work because people were trapped and they didn't have access to anything but um the physical and geographical challenges and how they were overcome in this case I found really really inspiring yeah I think one of the things that's the most striking and, and frightening about what's happened in Pakistan is that it's been obvious the level of infrastructure damage has been really catastrophic. So people's entire homes gone, but I think you've already touched on this, but things like grain stores destroyed. And it isn't sort of obvious looking at it how Pakistan's going to recover over the next few years, what this will mean for Pakistan's long-term future. So I suppose how how is that problem best approached? Hmm. That's a really important question, and I think one that we, as a humanitarian sector, are sometimes guilty of not addressing. I think part of this is as a result of lots of funding within this sector being what we call quite donor-driven. So while the donors, which in some cases might be big institutions, but in other cases might be individual people, um, have their attention on a certain crisis, funding is there and there's a huge pressure often on organizations to spend it quickly um charities and other you know ngos can face this huge backlash if they're seen to be hoarding money but actually sometimes that's the right thing to do because as you mentioned whilst the people of pakistan need emergency help now they will continue to need that for months and years as they rebuild as we re-establish livelihoods and so i think what I've certainly seen through working at the DEC is that there's often this two-phase approach. So there's that, what's going to happen in the first six months, but then actually, what does phase two look like? How do we make sure that we're not actually setting people up to almost experience more problems because we've kind of jumped in as a aid agencies and then pulled out very quickly? But I think that also, this is where crises can become more complex. There used to be this really kind of linear division of it. it was a humanitarian crisis that was very emergency and then it was development work which was much more working with governments long term and the rest of it I think what we're seeing now in kind of the real world is that actually the humanitarian sector and development agencies can and should really work together with governments because there's not really such a thing as short term and long term these these things really are one and the same yeah and I suppose the the short-term response will inform the long-term impact. Yeah. I think also, as just as you said that, it kind of reminded me that if you don't get the short-term right, that if that the knock-on effects for months and years down the line will be far worse. For example, you know, if we don't put in, in place effective sanitation and hygiene facilities at minute one, lots more people will experience disease and that will take much then longer to recover from and we'll lose lives needlessly so i think it's very very important that humanitarian agencies and international community come together now but with a view to that being tenable in the medium to long term as well yeah it's slightly pivoting thinking about your work with the dc one thing that's been noticeable about this particular crisis maybe compared to other ones is that there hasn't actually been that much media attention. I think that's been affected by the fact that in the time since the flooding began, we've had a new prime minister and the death of a monarch in this country. So I, I can see that there's a lot of competition for airspace. But I think even before that happened, the flooding in Pakistan seemed to be fairly low down on most news bulletins. So I wonder if, do you have any explanation for that? It, it's confusing to me. 
you're absolutely right that that is exactly what we saw um i think the other thing that we need to acknowledge is that this is the first um let's say humanitarian crisis that has hit the mainstream media after Ukraine. That is not to say that there haven't been other crises around the globe. For example, there's a very severe and worsening hunger crisis in the Horn of Africa right now. But that hasn't quite hit mainstream media. So I think because Pakistan has kind of followed that, we as a collective are more inclined to view this as, you know, a relatively quiet. There's not been much media attention. There's not been... I think actually this might not be that atypical of humanitarian crises across the globe but we had a particular once in a generation experience with the war in ukraine where actually that was all we were seeing in the uk media certainly it was very 24 7 nobody in you know the wider british community was unaware there was a war in ukraine and that people were being forced to flee whereas certainly i think people are unaware that there was flooding in pakistan or it was only being covered for a few days. I think certain fa- pragmatic factors like, you know, the new prime minister, the death of Queen Elizabeth, factored in. And as to the fact that it was a bank holiday, I know that sounds really callous, but unfortunately that kind of thing does affect um, the media. And these things go hand in hand because it then becomes, we, kind of, we spoke about self-fulfilling prophecies earlier, but there's another kind of phenomenon where actually if the attention of the British public or whichever public you're talking about isn't caught in that first instance, they're then not necessarily going back to the media looking for more information and therefore it doesn't inspire much follow-up content. So I think, yes, certainly we saw a reduction in coverage and that makes it incredibly difficult to fundraise because without public awareness, we don't necessarily even meet the criteria to run an emergency appeal. So if there are other crises around the world which organizations can't necessarily run campaigns for because they simply wouldn't be successful but i guess the flip side to this is that actually the the appeal has done very well of course it's not on the scale of ukraine but the dc has raised more than 30 million for pakistan and that wouldn't have been raised otherwise and that's very good going in compared to other crises so i don't think it's necessarily significantly less on the radar is what i'm trying to say but i would also say from my personal observation as much as anything that in general the public at large tend to respond a little better to a natural disaster i think because it's so sudden and it's emergent and quite scary and there's no blame that can be associated in the way that with internal conflict or, you know, different political issues that may happen in a a region. It's slightly easier for people to develop reservations about certain populations, which is not correct, right? That's not what humanitarian assistance is about. We're supposed to help out everybody who needs help, you know, no matter what what you believe about their government or any any of the rest of it. But I think that people are generally really quite sympathetic where to natural disasters because they're very visible also it's it's really clear that you know these floods happened this rain happened and now people are in crisis the slightly more protracted um kind of sit like the hunger crisis in the horn of africa that i mentioned or even currently the hunger crisis in afghanistan 
are just a little bit more difficult to galvanise people around because there's not a sudden kind of on switch, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And the other thing that I wondered about was, um, so the, the war in Ukraine, I think, dominated our airwaves so much because there, there's a political implication for the UK and for the rest of Europe, obviously, in, in the actions of the Russian government. And that isn't so obvious in the flooding in Pakistan, but I do, I do wonder whether, it seemed to me, I don't know whether this is accurate, but it looked like an example of a, of a climate change induced disaster that'll lead to a lot of forced migration. And that will have enormous political consequences for everybody in the world over the coming years. So I wonder if this is, in a few years time, this is going to look like the beginning of a trend. I don't know what you think about that. I would be inclined to agree, actually. I think what we're seeing is that the climate crisis, climate change, whatever you'd like to call it, is increasing the frequency and the severity of natural disasters. So it's not necessarily possible to say that a tsunami or a drought may not have occurred, but these things are becoming worse and they're becoming more common. And so I think actually, yes, we will see many more of this type of crisis, unfortunately, over the coming years and decades if, you know, real action isn't taken by the international community sort of now. Um, but you also touched on something quite interesting around international responsibility. And I think it is well established that those countries in the global north tend to be greater emitters, certainly historically, and have tended to contribute more than their fair share towards you know, the events in the climate crisis. Whereas those countries that have historically experienced more oppression as perhaps a result of some Western colonialist histories, for example, um, are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. So they're significantly worse off compared to people in places like Europe, but they're also significantly less responsible for it in terms of their actions over the past decades and centuries. And I think this raises some quite thorny issues under international law and also just in international relations, right? Because is it easy to attribute blame to a country? Not really, because it's not desperately easy to say that because of the UK's actions or the US actions or whatever, that this drought has happened. Um, very often not. There have been a few specific cases in the news recently where it has been more directly attributable. But in the main, it's difficult to say. And by extension, what do we call that, right? Like, is that aggression from one country to another? Is that what's happening? Or is it a failure to protect? Do you have a responsibility to not cause harm to those stations? You know, so I think there's a lack of clarity in the general kind of population around, like, what, what it even means for a country to be worsening the climate crisis or not taking enough action to mitigate the climate crisis like how do we what language do we use to describe those effects in relation to other nations and i think until we've got that ironed out it will be very difficult actually to speak about some of these what i'm going to call natural disasters as anything other than these standalone isolated events because it's very difficult and i'm not sure that anyone in you know those in power and Western political leadership necessarily want to take ownership of this anyway, right? So I'm not sure if that answers the question, but difficult issue. I guess the, the framework that sort of makes most instinctive sense to me is some kind of reparative justice. It's not the fault mm. of any one country, like in the present tense, um, 
that global emissions have been enormous. You can't pinpoint blame, but it's maybe possible to see where a country doesn't have resources that it maybe would have done otherwise. But again, like you say, it's going to be very difficult to find any particular global leader who's willing to take on that particular responsibility. Yeah, it's a very difficult one. I think the other thing it's worth discussing is that the stats around climate migration are really quite scary. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's possible that over the coming decades, more than a billion people could be displaced from their homes. And that might not necessarily be across borders. That might be within countries. But a billion people is a lot. Um, So I think what we really need to be having the conversation around, as much as our response to climate-induced crises, is actually how are we building climate resilience in local communities? And that tends to require a very localised approach, very community-based, listening to affected populations in that exact region. Because what might work in a rural community in Malawi may be wholly irrelevant for a community in Indonesia, for example, or indeed in Germany or Greece or somewhere that's affected by fires in the US. Um, And I think that's where we can sort of tie things back into the framework that you mentioned, where actually we can see very clearly which countries have greater resourcing to support in building climate resilience and which countries have not necessarily had the opportunity to develop that kind of economic infrastructure. And I think that's where we can start saying you have a responsibility to support the resilience of other nations in a way that maybe exists in the discourse at the moment, but is not being shouted particularly loudly. Yeah, I wonder if maybe part of that is that it's preventative work rather than emergency response, which is just much harder to fundraise for, I would imagine. It's difficult to say, you know, donate to us now so in 20 years' time we can avert a potential disaster that is likely to happen, but we don't know that it'll happen. Um, it's it, The messaging around that is harder. Uh, it seems, seems necessary and important. Yeah, it's a particularly difficult one. I think some of it, the research actually does exist. There is a list of countries that are, you know, much more predisposed to climate-induced disasters. So... I think there is enough evidence that the international community could focus its efforts. But just as we talked about earlier in the fact that protracted crises that don't have this on-off switch are much more difficult to galvanise attention and fundraising around, I think we'll see something very similar in terms of preventative efforts. So I completely agree. And, and one other thing that I wonder if it maybe affected the fundraising for Pakistan compared to somewhere like Ukraine is that I know at home here in the UK, there is a fair amount of racism against the Pakistani community here. So I wonder if that affected your fundraising. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. And, I mean, racism more generally plays a role in the international response to different humanitarian crises. I mean, we see that within Solidarity's work in the refugee crisis. We see that particularly racism and Islamophobia play a huge role in people's willingness or lack thereof to support basic human rights. And I think that's certainly also probably one of the reasons why the response to the crisis in Ukraine has been so much more sympathetic than it has otherwise been. But I would agree that, unfortunately, specifically in relation to British Pakistanis facing a really extreme amount of racism here in the UK, that has then been mirrored in these hostile attitudes towards supporting Pakistanis living in Pakistan. And... If you just go on social media on any any of the you know major international NGOs um, emergency appeals, you do unfortunately see some really vitriolic comments 
that are very specific to Pakistan and to what misguided beliefs are held around British Pakistanis. Um, and that's just not something that was, you know, has been seen in other recent events and has been really incredibly difficult to deal with because it's just so harmful on so many levels and so very upsetting for the people that work on social media and have to actually wade through those comments. Yeah. And so just finally, I wonder, because of your two roles, both in Solidarity and at the DEC, do you have any thoughts about looking through at this particular crisis through the lens of forced displacement and what the impact is going to be of the flooding on, on displacement within and outside of Pakistan? Yeah, this is, a, to my mind, an incredibly important question and I think requires me to just walk back a couple of steps because I recently gave a talk um, to a local team and people were very, very shocked that those in Pakistan who had, whether they'd been forced to flee their homes because their, their homes no longer existed, um, were not refugees. And I think there's this real misconception that anyone who leaves their home or is loses their home against their will is a refugee and that's actually not correct so when we look at the UN refugee convention definition a refugee is somebody who is fleeing persecution persecution is very personal someone's being targeted because of who they are or what they believe so nationality ethnicity political opinion those things are not the case in response to a natural disaster floods and rain don't target people based on their beliefs or their identity um so already we have displacement which in itself does not qualify someone for refugee status and furthermore people are generally being displaced internally within pakistan and they have a view to return to their homes and to rebuild um but what this means is that people are still under the jurisdiction of their own state because the international community has a little bit less of a responsibility to uphold people's rights than they would if people were fleeing across borders. So I think that does add a layer of complexity to the international response. Um, but more than that, I think we do need to acknowledge that when this type of disaster occurs, families become separated, people are injured, homes are lost, disease increases, pe children are not able to go to school, economic distress, etc. All of those things, the lack of resources and the lack of community stability predispose to other forms of violence and injustice. So now suddenly violence against women and girls may rise. Sexual exploitation and abuse may rise. If people don't have enough to eat, conflict internally and other forms of persecution may arise. I'm not saying that as fact, I'm just saying that we know that when resources are scarce and when people are already experiencing so many types of other hardship, there are increased risks to, often to those people that are already historically more vulnerable. And this may in itself kind of induce other forms of displacement. So again, I'm saying in the hypothetical, but we may then also see people being forced to flee across borders. So I think Often we kind of look at things in this very binary lens of like, you're a refugee or you're not a refugee or an economic migrant or whatever. But that's not how these things work. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to just unpick some of the reasons why displacement is often much, much murkier than that. And therefore it doesn't really ever make sense to, to try and pigeonhole. Thank you so much, Lexi. Thank you.